When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, outcasts, freaks, and socially awkward weirdos. Today's guest is Greg Hetson, lead guitarist for the Los Angeles, California punk rock band Circle Jerks. Together, we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind Back Against the Wall, taken from their 1980 debut album, Group Sex. Greg informed me that Back Against the Wall was the very first song that Circle Jerks wrote together. At the time, Greg had just exited punk rock pioneer's Red Cross, and lead vocalist Keith Morris had just left Black Flag. The overall lyrical sentiment of the track is not letting yourself be held down by the man, something that 44 years later hasn't gone out of style one bit. When I asked Greg about Kerry Markoff, who was credited as producer on Group Sex, his answer was both brutally honest and absolutely hilarious. Oh, and this is back when bands had to make their own sound effects, and vocalist Keith Morris graciously accepted that role. Just remember, kids, a hammer and a microphone don't go too well together. So for all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Mr. Greg Hudson, how are we? I am living the dream, and you? I'm doing the exact same thing as you, living the dream. And I got to tell you, I have seen you more in the last month than I've seen my dad's side of the family. Really? Yes. True story. And and (laughs) your dad's side of the family probably lives 20 minutes from you. Yes, most of them do. So I I saw you uh, playing with Circle Jerks at the Punk and Drublick uh, in Orlando recently. And then we caught up at the Punk Rock Museum where you were doing punk rock karaoke and Man, you don't slow down. I mean, you seem like you get busier as the years years go by. Yeah, I've been pretty busy the last few years, you know. I've been pretty lucky. The the punk gods have been good to me lately. Yeah. Now, I mean, punk rock karaoke has been going on now for at least a decade or longer. The first time we did it was 1996. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so way longer. Then we started taking it on the road a little bit in 98. Warped Tour 98 was the first time we brought it on the road. When I first heard circle jerks this would have been late 80s and then i got a chance to see you at what was called janice landing uh probably 90 or 91 but you know 
even back in the late eighties, I don't think then, you know, I hadn't uh, connected enough dots yet. Of course the internet wasn't around and I only had access to whatever magazines were around and, and liner notes of albums that I could get. But it was a Doughboys record, this band from Canada. And inside the record, they thanked Red Cross. And I was like, what's that? And then I stumbled across that and realized that you were in Red Cross. I mean, I've never had a chance to say this to you because I've known you for, gosh, going on probably 30 years now. But thank you for paving the way. You know, I was telling people at the Punk Rock Museum, I talked a lot about the Jerks. I talked a lot about Black Flag, Red Cross, all these bands that, you know, you guys went out and killed yourselves in the 80s. You went out and made zero money. You played in the most dangerous places to play. You got screwed over by promoters left and right. You were sleeping in, in abominable conditions, <laughs> eating one bean burrito a day at Taco Bell. Pretty much true, but sorry to interrupt, but we weren't the original wave, so... People paved the way before us, so I got you. Got to give props to the people that were a little bit before the bands that I was in in the late seventies, early eighties. So sure, and that's and that's that's nice of you to say, but you know, but you know, when my band came along in ninety two. You know, a lot of that stuff was weeded out. You know, word had got around. The bands that were touring in the punk rock scene, they would tell other guys like, hey, Kevin Seconds, you guys shouldn't play this place in Philly. The promoter's a shyster. Don't go there, you know. But oh, yeah. I think a lot of it had to do when I first met you when you were playing with Bad Religion years ago. I didn't want to, like, be the fanboy and be asking you all these questions. So this is really cool for me <laughs> to actually sit you down and be able to, to do it this way because you become friends sometimes with your idols. I've said this before to guys that are on here, and it's, it's weird when your friends you're not going to say what was that first circle jerks tour like you know but i gotta ask you know you picked this song back against the wall which is from your debut album group sex with the jerks and you basically told me you picked this one because it had a great story as well as it was the first song you wrote together as a band correct but getting back to your story about becoming friends with your your quote-unquote idols I mean, that happens to a lot of people, even me, you know, I'm not immune from that. It's like the first punk rock show I ever went to was the Dickies in uh, July 1978. And now I get to play in punk rock karaoke with Stan Lee from the Dickies. <laughs> They're really good friends. Like, who would have thunk? You know, the yeah. 17 year old, not even punk rock. I had long hair. I still had hair, you know. Mm hmm. Me would be friends with Stan, the great Stan Lee from the Dickies. <laughs> it's like crazy. What was the allure for you? I, I I love to ask this about guys that were there. I mean, I know that you know punk rock uh, was there a little bit before you, but you were right there. Nineteen seventy eight, you were the Dickies show. I mean, there there the, the scene was way smaller. It hadn't become uh, commercialized at all. You were yep. there, and what was the allure for you? What what was it? Punk rock. You know what? Why did you gravitate towards that? I was always looking for the most guitar heavy rock music and you know it kind of got me into the the early metal you know judas priest and rock you know hard rock like aerosmith ufo that kind of stuff and then i heard punk rock heard the ramones i'm like what the hell's this this is like this is heavy shit you know mm -hmm. that guitar tone you know and the just in your face well, because I, you know, I, I look at pictures from you back then and you just look like this kid from the seventies and you just kind of, I don't know, you, you almost look, don't take this the wrong way. Like you didn't belong, but you did belong. It was punk rock, you know, like what, how did you, <laughs> who was your first friend that said, Hey, check this out. A friend of mine's uh, older brother had the Ramones leave home album. He's like, Oh, check this out. My brother just got this. I'm like, well, yeah, very cool. And I, 
you know, started to hear a little about punk rock and kind of heard about the Dead Boys of the New York stuff, you know, Blondie, and then discovered there was actually an L.A. punk scene as well. I heard uh, the Dickies and bands like that on the, the Rodney on the Rock show on K-Rock Sunday night. Rodney on the Rocks, correct Correct me if I'm wrong, that was like a Sunday night special. They would kind of preview local bands, like maybe from 10 to 11 on Sunday nights or something? Yep. Yeah, they would play They would play local punk, mostly punk bands, you know, and uh, started hearing the local bands. Hardly anybody had any releases back then, especially in, in L.A., and sometimes would just be demo tapes or acetates. Look that up, kids. Acetates. Acetates. Regards <laughs> to records. It was like be a demo of an X record, but it was just the acetate. It wasn't even the test pressing yet, you know. Yeah. You get like 10 plays before it disintegrated. <laughs> There'd be no high end left. So, yeah. We, could, we couldn't afford to repress, get this press, but here, here's the acetate. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's how I got introduced to the, the LA punk scene. What did your parents think of this? They probably didn't really like the music, but they didn't discourage me from, you know, exploring stuff. My dad was a vinyl, kind of a vinyl junkie. We'd go shop, record shopping all the time. You know, his taste was way different than me, but, you know, he wasn't, did like the, uh, you know, the anti-war protest stuff from the 60s and 70s, kind of the folk style of that, you know. Well, no, and the, and the reason I asked about your, your parents, I, I've never really asked too many people on the show about that, but it, I was just thinking, like, again, this is such a new thing. I mean, people weren't walking around with safety pins out of their ears and their noses and with, with pink hair. And when punk rock came around, it had to be, you know, a little bit of a culture shock to some people. It was a culture shock to me. I, that first show I went to, I was a little scared because there was there was a, a couple with safety pins in their cheek and they were connected by a, a chain of safety pins. <laughs> And I'm like, what the hell? I'm going to die. No, but yeah. Uh, but everybody was cool. Yeah. And I was seeing, you know, tons of flyers out at the museum with you guys on it back then. You were playing places like the Starwood, you know, which was also a popular metal hangout. You know, a lot of the metal bands played there. Of course, you did the Troubadour, the Whiskey, the Roxy, that whole circuit. Did you ever do Reseda Country Club? Was that a place you would play? Yeah. Yeah. We never did play the Troubadour. No kidding. Or the Roxy back in the day. They wouldn't let punk rock back in my day, Sonny, play those those venues. But we did play the Whiskey. We played the Country Club. Yeah. Did you ever play uh, Fenders down in Long Beach? Fenders, which it got really bad with all the punk gangs and the violence and destroyed the punk rock scene for a while. You can hear all about that on my punk rock museum tours if you're ever in Las Vegas. Yes. <laughs> and you should, because Greg, you, you know you know your stuff, Greg Hudson. So yes, go go uh, go have Greg give you a, a tour of the museum. But no, you know, you just mentioned that violence. You know, we had some skinhead issues in Florida back in the late eighties, early nineties, and that was still uh, kind I, of I remember. Yeah, that was still kind of bubbling when we, we were coming. We we saw the tail end of that, thank God. I'm glad that that got phased out and that was just a, a blip on the radar. But um, in terms of that danger, I mean, I know the places you were playing. I know some of the places we were playing early on. They were in the you know low-rent part of town, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. You have some kid telling you, yeah, you can stay at my house. You get there. His parents are like, no, you're not staying here tonight. Now you got to pivot and go to the next thing. And it was it was like the wild, wild west out there. Yeah, and then you get to you get to the venue, you get ready to start to play, and then the cops would come in. And go, Where's your permit to the promoter? And they didn't have the permits. Mm-hmm. The show would get shut down, and the kids would get pissed and break shit and riot. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Well, okay, 
you coming from Red Cross, and I believed you joined the band in 79. Yeah, I was the original member. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you put a record out in 80. Now you're in Circle Jerks. Of course, you wrote songs with Red Cross. And of course, uh, Keith Morris came from Black Flag, which he was a-, a songwriter there. So now you get together. Take us back to when you wrote Back Against the Wall. Well, it was our first practice or rehearsal, whatever. Or I had to use rehearsal because... Mike Watt always said, musicians practice, actors rehearse. I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a good Watt-ism. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he ingrained that in me. He played a little bit for a punk rock karaoke, and he would always say shit like that. <laughs> to fuck with us. We'd say, what? Let's go rehearse. <laughs> actors rehearse, musicians practice. <laughs> anyway, so we get together. I knew Lucky because we tried him out to be the, the new drummer for Red Cross at that the guys, you know, they made excuses why they didn't like him. But I find out, you know, 30 years later, they were just intimidated because he was a real musician. But anyway, so the band implodes. I know Lucky. I know he's a good drummer. Keith knew Roger, the bass player. So we get together and, uh, you know, Lucky just was like, I, I've been kind of working up this beat here. And then Roger starts doing this bass line to it. And then I kind of do a choppy guitar, counter guitar thing to make it all you know, it's all, you know, all over the place. I, I don't know how to explain musically because I'm, I'm not a trained musician. And then, you know, I, I got another part. I got another part. It was kind of like everybody was throwing parts in. And then Keith was like, you know, started yelling stuff into the microphone. You know, it happened organically. And then after that practice, we're like, wow, that was cool. I think we might be out of something. Did you already have the name by then or were you just four friends jamming? No, we, had, we didn't have a name, no. Because you recorded the record... In July of 1980, so would this have been the early part, spring, spring or winter of uh, of 80 that you were writing the song? It might have been the end of, end of 1979 when we first were getting together. We didn't play our first show to 1980. I'm not very good at math, but I do know that that's 44 years. So you're, you're going back here uh, a stretch. And now, where were you at when you wrote the song? Were you in a rehearsal space, someone's someone's living room? Yeah, we were in a practice space. <laughs> 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 Sorry, in a practice space. We were in Herschel's place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would you, were you sharing it with a bunch of other bands to keep uh, keep costs down? I'm sure it was a monthly thing, or how'd that work? Let me tell you how it was back in my day, Sonny. When we went to to go to to practice, it was hourly, and there was no backline. You lugged your stuff in. You had a way for everybody to tear down their shit uh-huh. and lug their stuff out. And then you'd have to like sift through their garbage to try to get your equipment over the with the beer cans and wrappers of food and whatever and whatnot sometimes they leave some drugs behind by accident you know that, <laughs> maybe it's still that way that was the perks yeah so i want to talk a little bit about this so you know group sex you recorded it in july 1980 which wasn't that long after you formed uh the album has 14 songs in 15 minutes and 25 seconds that became like a landmark thing for a lot of punk rock re- records, you know, and bands, they were starting to, how many songs can we cram in here? But, you know, right. in, the sh- in, in the shortest amount of time. And I looked for a little bit on producer Carrie Markoff, but I couldn't find really, was that just a friend or how, how did that come about? He was the guy that fronted the weed to the stu- the guy that ran the studio <laughs> at, after hours for the studio time, literally, you know, yeah. <laughs> so he, he was a friend of Lucky's and he, you know, he dabbled in a little, uh, you know, a side hustle, let's call it. And he traded some weed to the engineer. Because back back in those days, uh, studios were 24 hours a day. 
they ran 24 hours a day. And the, uh, the, the newer engineers, the second engineers, would get to bring their, their bands in late at night. So we, we'd get a call, like the session would be over at 11 p.m. Come on in, we got studio time. And we were doing it on the sly because he didn't tell anybody because we were just, it was a bro deal. We, the studio wasn't making money. Yeah. So we had to sneak in when the studio manager wasn't around or the owner or the, the, the main engineers were, were gone for the day and go and sneak in and get our recording in. And now, did you do this to half-inch tape, or do you recall how it was recorded? What kind of gear? It was 16-track, yeah. 16-track, okay. And you get in there, and it sounds like you were recorded live off the floor, but maybe guitars were overdubbed or, or, or vocals? That's exactly, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And I know on the song group sex, it's we didn't do any overdubs except for some vocals. It's crazy how much happened in production and styling from 80 to 90, okay? And and the, the sounds of the records and the stuff you were doing with Bad Religion a decade later. Because I remember as a kid getting into punk rock, and this was only the late 80s. I had heard you by 88, 89, but the record sounded old to me as a kid, being from 80 and only a seven year span that's how much technology had surpassed all of us at that point yeah but now in a weird way this sounds fresh 43 years later if that makes sense <laughs> it doesn't sound like everything else out there now right we were probably thinking the same thing about the bands from the 60s it's like oh that stuff sounds so dead uh-huh it's like this sounds so much better you know <laughs> right right and then you go back you know 10 years after that or 20 years, 30 years, whatever years, like that still sounds, it's like I heard the other day I'm at in, in the store somewhere and I hear, uh, sad, it was actually yesterday, I was going to get Diet Coke somewhere at a liquor store and I hear Satisfaction and it's like, this still fucking rocks, Rolling Stones. <laughs> You know, a thousand years later, it it still stands up. Some stuff stands up, some stuff does not, you know? Yeah. And real quick, before we jump in the track, I just want to touch on uh, Penelope Spheris. Uh, she was the director in The Decline of Western Civilization, a 1980 documentary about punk rock, which she followed up with an excellent uh, part two of The Metal Years. And both movies are, are, are some of my favorite documentations of history from that part. And your performance in it is just so great. I sat there and watched the whole thing. It's like four songs. It's on YouTube. Uh, for, for those listening, go check it out. But it's just... You know, uh, you did this record. You did Group Sex. How long after that were you playing shows? Were you playing shows before the record was recorded? And and how did you get momentum? You guys were basically starting over from Black Flag and Red Cross. How did you get noticed early on? We played parties. We played every weekend, anywhere we could, you know, at colleges, uh, whatever. And we just went out there and, and we're just kind of working the songs in. As we go, I remember our first show. I think we fucked up every song, but, <laughs> but we barreled through them all. And like, okay, hmm, that was kind of a train wreck, but people seem to like it anyway. Yeah, I don't know. We might be, maybe we're, we're not, we weren't as bad as we thought. You know. Do you remember that feeling of exhilaration from those first shows? 
I mean, I still am amped before I play and when I get off stage, but nothing can ever take the place of that. It's, it's kind of like, here's your first hit, kid. It's like nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing gets better than that first time. For sure. Me and our bass player, Xander, we joke around because, you know, I always get a little, little nervous before that or psych pumped up before we play. And it's like, are you, we always like joke, are you nervous? Yep. But I'm terrified. Yep. Terrified. Yep, this is happening. There's no take backs. You know, <laughs> yeah. we just got to go do it. We're jumping off the deep end. And, and speaking of jumping off the deep end, we're going to get into the song right now, Greg. I think that you have the honor of the shortest song on Krista Makes a Podcast. I believe so, unless Chris, our producer, chimes in here and tells me otherwise. One minute and 32 seconds. Well, I, I could have done like, I could have picked you know, everything. I think it's 27 seconds. <laughs> uh, one thing I did want to know, I let you know, uh, if you didn't know, on the first album, Group Sex, the original pressing, we added a few seconds to every song because we thought people might not want to buy a, you know, a 16-minute album or whatever it is. So we, we made it seem like the songs were longer than they were. Really? So the, yeah. is this not one minute and 32 seconds? <laughs> do you have the original pressing or do you have a subsequent pressing? <laughs> um, I, I actually listened to this on Spotify, so I don't know. But we're going to call it one minute and 32 seconds. That, that's probably correct if it's on Spotify. We'll get the stopwatch out. Yep. Uh, it's a four-bar intro, Greg. It starts with a snare hit and then eighth note palm mutes on the guitar along with bass guitar, a steady ride cymbal and a menacing guitar lick panned off left. This is followed by the verse progression for eight bars, no vocals yet. Uh, guitar and bass are playing an ascending riff together, but it's not super tight. It's, it's kind of, uh, there's a little push and pull going on there. And I, I love what that, uh, what that does together. And the drums are playing this really unorthodox, for punk rock, unorthodox, almost jazz beat, you know? And you talked about Lucky. He, yeah, he, he was he liked jazz. He was a, he learned as a jazz musician. This sound of the way the snare, you know, is going back and forth, those double snares and that bell from the ride cymbal, it's unlike anything I've read, really ever heard in punk rock. It, it was It's so different. And the fact that this was your first song, uh, it, it's pretty incredible what he brought to the band. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with Greg Hetson coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I'd mentioned a second ago, those double snares. I just think they're so killer and how loud he was. I mean, I know this wasn't the greatest recording. You know, I'm sure there wasn't mics on everything, but how loud and clear that that ride, that bell comes through on the recording. It's just like, it's like you're sitting there in the room. That was kind of a new a new thing in the 
you know, recording to make sure the bell was was prominent. We've heard a, we heard a couple out records, I think, with the ride and the bell were were mic'd. So we're like, we made sure that was going to come through on the recording. Did you guys? And I'm I'm assuming no. You didn't demo any of this back then. This would just be worked up in, in the rehearsal space and uh, practice space, excuse me. And you would go, <laughs> you'd go and record it, right? You weren't demoing on a four track or even a just a regular cassette tape recorder. Well, according to the engineer, Cliff Zellman, when he was interviewed for the liner notes of our latest re-release, he said that, you know, he set everything up and he was going to get levels and we just blazed through the set and like, okay, that's the record. <laughs> okay, I guess we're rolling with it. And now you, you mentioned about like, you know, 24-hour lockouts all day with, with studios back in the day. Do you remember what time you recorded this? Was it like midnight till six in the morning? Something like that or 10 at night or, or you know, 11. It was somewhere late at night. We got that done and then you know, a few more days later, it's like, oh, we got more time. Do a little more guitars or some vocals. Go home, you know, wait for the next call. Do you remember being happy with the recording when it was all said and done? Yes. Yes. That's great. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we, we were very happy. Some of my early recordings I wasn't happy with. Uh, <laughs> so we weren't, happy, we weren't happy with the way Wild in the Streets came out, but we liked Group Six. Okay, okay. And, and you should. There's just something so primitive and just real with this recording when i hear it i'm like yeah this is just four punk friends hanging out have, having a good time you yellow in the fires they're backed up against the wall they're up there clutching their guns man and it makes you feel real small so you yell out in defiance you're backed up against the wall they're up there clutching their guns man and it makes you feel real small so and I included the so there because it's so spaced apart from when the chorus comes in, <laughs> where, where Keith says so. So I'm including it there before we get in the chorus. But uh, what's the gist here? What's going on? Uh, basically feeling like you're powerless, I'd imagine. I'm not a big lyric guy. You know, I don't, I don't pay attention to lyrics. I don't hear music that way as a guitar player. That's really interesting. I've had people say exactly what you just said. So I'm assuming Keith wrote these lyrics. And yes, did. now you say you're not a lyric guy. Did you ever have any input? You say, hey, maybe this could be better. Or you just let Keith create what he was hearing. Every once in a while, maybe with, you know, the way things are, are phrased or a line or two here and there, a word or two. And now any idea with a the line, they're up there clutching their guns. Is that talking about police? It could be. It could be metaphorically. The people, the system, the man. The man. And, and I say that because... <laughs> You know as well as I do, and there's photos of it in the punk rock museum, there'd be riot police at punk shows. A huge presence. It wasn't like, you know, a half a dozen guys. It'd be like 30 guys in SWAT gear showing up. So that's, that's why I, I asked about that lyric. There had been some punk punk riots, you know, mostly instigated by the police. So it, it was, uh, you know, you never knew it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And chorus one comes right off the heels of verse one. So, you can cuss, spit, throw bottles, broken glass, when it ends up with the handcuffs on your hands. It's like feeling feeling a powerlessness. Whatever you do, you can be passive, you can yell, you can do this or that, Do you know? maybe do nothing, but it's the same result. The man's going to get you, man. <laughs> will that sentiment, will that lyric ever get old? 
You know, I fought the law and the law won. I mean, will that ever get old? How can you not get behind that and embrace that, right? Like, we all feel belittled at some point. And certainly for punk rock lyrics, these are absolutely perfect. Uh, The guitar is no longer playing those syncopated choppy chords like you were talking about, that riff, Greg. It goes to a full-on strumming assault here in Chorus 1. On the line, throwing bottles, there's a sound effect, Greg, of broken glass that happens there. And was that real glass that you broke and recorded and and flew in, or (laughs) was that a sound effect? Well, since we're talking about a story here and how the recording is, and that's the whole gist of this podcast, correct? Yes. Uh, We took some light bulbs and broke them, uh, Keith did, and then... I can't remember if it was the first first one or the second one. He actually broke the mic as well as the uh, <laughs> as well as the, <laughs> the light bulb with the hammer. It sounds like the second one, and and we'll get to that one in a second. I have to ask, you know, the lyric is what it is: throw bottles. But did you want to give the fans, and did you even think about this when you were doing it? Probably not. Hey, we're gonna put a sound effect of broken bottles. I'm assuming it happened live. And I went and looked at as many live videos of this song from back in the day as I could see. I didn't hear any noticeable glass breaking, but did you see it? Did you remember like fans when they would hear that line live, uh, throw bottles? Yeah. I don't remember that ever happening. That uh, I, don't re- I don't recall that. Okay. My memory isn't as good as Keith's. But he might remember. Okay. I thought that was interesting. That was kind of a gutsy move of like, hey, we're going to put this sound effect of bottles breaking. But next thing you know, you got a Budweiser bottle flying at your head. Yeah, I don't think we were thinking about that. Maybe we should have. <laughs> I bet I'm going to duck. We have a show tonight. I'm going to duck. When that, I'm going to be looking around. I, I love that part, though, because bands, man, and it was the punk bands, like we were really into sampling. I know less than Jake was. Hey, we got this funny sample from a movie. We're going to put it in the bridge of this song. And it was always, right. you know, kind of the record wasn't done until you got a sample on there. Uh, coming out of chorus one, we get a four bar instrumental of the verse progression again, like the top of the song to set up verse two. You run around and spray paint graffiti on everybody's wall. You think that's bitching, man. That ain't nothing at all. And who was that referring to? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I think that refer, kind of referring to, you know, that gang mentality, the gang mm-hmm. territories. That's the way I interpret it. You know, you had kind of mentioned a little bit ago about that gang presence at shows. So were these just gangs looking for trouble? They didn't really like punk rock or were some of them punk fans? The violent ones, the one, the one we were talking about earlier was, was, was the quote unquote punk gangs. I'm thinking this, I'm thinking more of this is like, the, you know, the street gangs. Street gangs. You know, okay. street violence. It was, it was just starting to get really bad in L.A., the gang wars. Yeah. So this would have been when you were out playing and, and something I forgot to mention, I, I had thought about, I saw posters of you guys at the museum from like 1982. So we're only talking a year and a half after you recorded this record year, year and a half that full date U S tours. Not a lot of bands were doing that. They'd stay regional, but this was all right. across, this was all across the U S and you know, that had to be uh, crazy for a band at that time to go out and do it. Yeah. We were, you know, we were breaking new territory. Not a lot, not a lot of bands were doing it, like you said, and we didn't even look that weird. And we were getting, you know, a lot of strange tears down in the South. Like, oh, sure. 
Yeah, for, for you guys hopping out of, of a van at a shell station at two in the morning and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hargrove, Georgia. I mean, I could imagine the looks you're going to be getting. <laughs> yep. Uh, coming out of verse two, we go straight into chorus two. Same lyrics, again, except the last line. It says, uh, so you can cuss, spit, throw bottles, broken glass, but it ends with a swift kick to your ass. That's true. <laughs> Which I like that lyric because how many times do you seen a punk singer, or usually it's the guitar player because they got their hands full with the guitars, but they'll give a swift kick to someone's ass on stage to get them off. I know I've done it a hundred times. Like, get away, kid. And you'll just kind of boot them a little bit. It's not to hurt them, just to kind of let them know, shoo. <laughs> I can't say I've never done that. You might not. You might even see that on the decline of Western civilization. Me doing that. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint, hint. Um, here on chorus two, and these are the kind of nuances that that I pay attention to, that I nerd out on. Chorus two. The sample of the glass breaking is not only a different sample, you know, no Pro Tools in, couldn't fly in. And I think this is where the, the hammer actually hit the microphone because it sounds yeah. really distorted here on this sample. But, Greg, it's in a different spot than Chorus 1. So was that intentional? Did you, did, did you even think about it? Did you even realize? Do you even know? <laughs> I think it was just a, a different timing. It's like, let's do it here. I, no, no, I don't. I don't think it was intentional. Probably by that time, you know, there might have been some beers drank by by ah, Keith, and ah. it might have been like, oh, I missed, I missed a spot, but we don't have anything else to break, and now the microphone's broken. So okay. let's just go, go with it. You answered my question because for some reason I'm still thinking in a digital way here that you recorded Keith and then you somehow flew it back into the session. Oh no, it was done live. It was. The- yeah. yeah, it's like here, here the part comes. He's holding the hammer, and now we're gonna break the glass. Then that, yeah. then that, <laughs> that that explains it. And that is so cool. Uh, after chorus two, we get an eight bar guitar solo. The guitar is panned left again, very reminiscent uh, of that guitar uh, solo lick at the top of the song. And this solo uh, is over the chorus chord progression. And then coming out of this, we go into it basically it's verse three but it's now the whole band is double timed and this is where lucky does this drum fill which I know he's an amazing drummer, but it's kind of all over the place, this drum fill that takes us into this fast yeah. part. And I guess it was just punk rock. You were doing this live, and that's the way it ended up, and you weren't going to go back and fix it. Correct. Yeah. It was all about the feel. It's like, and studio time was really expensive. Well, we didn't pay because we, we traded yeah. the marijuana for it. <laughs> but there was no do-over sometimes because of the, the cost. Right, but you know, it's so great for a band like you guys at the time to go see the band live. You know, probably every two out of five times he went to play that, he was probably going to flub it. So it kind of gave authenticity to the recording. Yeah, you got to be in your toes. You got to look at the drummer sometimes to make sure you catch your cues. 
It's awesome. That's that, and that was one of the allures for me to punk rock. Greg was that it didn't have to be perfect. You know, no yeah. pop music or anything. I was watching on MTV back in the early '80s was letting a drum fill like that slide by. It just wasn't going to happen. That's what attracted me to punk because I knew I couldn't play like Eddie Van Halen because he was all the rage back there. And yeah, you know, when that first Van Halen album came out and everybody wanted to play like that or go to the Guitar Institute and be a virtuoso. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> you knew three chords and you had a crate amp. You were ready to go. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, coming out uh, again of that solo, we go double time and we get uh, basically verse one again. You yell out in defiance. You're backed up against the wall. They're up there clutching their guns, man. It makes you feel so small. We don't get and on that fourth line like we do in the uh, in verse one. And then we go right into chorus three. We're still double timed here. However, and I'm, I think you answered this question uh, a couple minutes ago, Greg. There's no sound effect here. I'm assuming you ran out of uh, glass to break for chorus three. Right. I don't even know if we would have done it. I think twice was probably enough anyway and it's a different vibe here this fully seems like by yeah. this point the, the the audience would be in a moshing frenzy because you know you're, you're you're sped up here this is where the circle pit is that you know the dust is flying the the tornado winds are brewing <laughs> <laughs> The band abruptly ends at the same time on hands. The very last line, the lyric, when it ends up with the handcuff on your hands, song's done, one minute and 32 seconds. And did you ever think as a kid in the fall of 1979, the first song you wrote with your new band you joined that you'd be talking about it 44 years later? Absolutely not. We just want to get out of the garage and play a show. Yeah. And how is this now? And I've never really asked a, a band that's been around this long because you guys are all, I mean, you're just better musicians than you were then. I've heard you play guitar. I know what you're capable of. Is it hard to play the songs as they were? Do you feel like, hey, we're, we're playing this part in time now? Or do you try to stay true to the, to the tracks as they were? Because I know that's very difficult for my band when we go back and try to do some of those first initial songs. We were, they're all over the place. We weren't using click tracks, etc. No, it's a, lot, it's a lot tighter for sure. And, we're, and then sometimes I try, I'm trying to reproduce like some of those guitar solos I did early on. And it's like, what the hell was I doing? It's, I can't even decipher what I'm playing because it's just like, going for it, not knowing where it's going and not getting a second take. And it's mm -hmm. sloppy and maybe there's a bad note or two here. And it's like, what do I do? Shit. <laughs> do I do it like that? Or just, you know, I want to keep it real, but I don't want it to sound too perfect either. But it's kind of, kind of difficult sometimes. And there's some bands like, for instance, no effects. I'll just use them as an example. But like if they went to try to play something from, you know, reproduce the sounds live of what's on liberal animation or SM Airlines, like they weren't good yet. <laughs> no, yeah. Same, same, same with us. We're just better now. Yeah. And it, it sounds technically better. Being precise without being sterile is, you know, I think you got to walk that fine line and it, it's tough at sometimes, but I, I think we, we still capture that excitement almost going off the cliff, but not quite but reining it in and being tight on top of it and precise. 
I think you nailed it on the head. That's exactly what I what I hear and what I feel when I watch the jerks today. You know, it's. Well, I hope it, we it, don't run out of nails like we did those uh, light bulbs because uh, you know I got to do a lot of nailing tonight <laughs> on stage to uh, make sure I nail it down. That's awesome. Well, hey, before we before we break here, what what's going on with the Circle Jerks? You guys got it. You know, you you haven't released a record. Uh, I know you released a new single a couple of years ago, but you haven't released a new record since 1995's Oddities, Abnormalities, and Curiosities. So, anything uh, on the horizon? Uh, yeah, we just went in and recorded some stuff, and I don't know if I'm at liberty to discuss exactly what it is, but there is some new stuff coming out. Uh, it's not a full album. But uh, and next year we're, we plan on making an album, and we have the studio time booked out, and there we go. Awesome, man! And See anything, what happens. Anything else happening in the world of Greg Hudson, punk rock karaoke? Anything? Anything else happening? Uh, punk rock karaoke. We're heading out on the. Well, I don't know when this is going to air, but well, I'll just say next year we'll be playing on the East Coast in January, like from Boston down to DC, and. Uh, you know, we're doing our thing. We're trying to branch out, take it. We play a lot in the L.A. area because it's easy with everybody being in different bands. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to, to book anything out of out of state, but uh, we're trying to do that. Someday I'm going to finish my, my elusive solo album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I, I've heard about that. What's up with that? Uh, you know, I'm, I have a studio at my house. I, I'm lazy to walk the 25 feet or whatever it is out my back door into my studio my converted garage into a studio and record my own shit. I'm just, you know, it's that, uh, that imposter syndrome that I deal with. Are you doing the vocals or are you having guest vocalists? There's no singing. It's instrumental. Instrumental. Interesting. Okay. I was going to offer my vocal services. I would love to sing on a Greg Hudson solo. If you make an album with vocals, don't forget about old Chris. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't write lyrics. I'm like, like someone to come and sing and write lyrics. I just an instrumental album. I think I started working on it 12 years ago. <laughs> I'm almost done with three tracks, though. Hey, almost. <laughs> it is a, uh, it, it's a work in progress. Well, Greg, thank you yeah. for uh, taking the time out today to sit in here and uh, talk with me. I appreciate it. Good times. I'm glad I, I went back for that, that uh, second Diet Coke when I had breakfast today to go because, you know, I, I was a little, little tired today after traveling overnight. The, the topsy-turvy life of... The touring musician. <laughs> Personal problems, I know. I'll shut the F up. Hey, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Greg Hetson, but don't go anywhere. We got lots more Chris to Makes a podcast, including the band you might not know and the rap segment coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. 
If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's feature artist is Slave to Servant, a nuanced culture movement and collective of various musicians who play and tour on a voluntary basis. They just released their debut album. Here's a snippet of their first single, Destroying the Eye. Chris and Chris. So, Chris, that was a really fun one. Obviously, Greg Hetson is a punk rock legend, and he's super humble about his place in the punk rock story, I feel like. Uh, not to date myself or you or Greg or anyone out there, but the song you're talking about today, it was born the same year as me. <laughs> so it's pretty cool <laughs> that Greg can still recall details of the writing and recording of it. I mean, I'm just, a lot of it has to do with going out there and just witnessing the history all in one place at that punk rock museum. I'm just going through there and I'm just like, and, and I tried to talk to Greg about it. As you said, he's humble. He's always been that way. He's like the nicest guy. And you, yeah. you know, you try to pick his brain about that. Well, you know, what was this? What was that? He's like, eh, he just kind of downplays it. You know, he, I, and, and it's not like he wants to downplay it for any other reason. And he's just like, yeah, I was there. I did it, you know, but it just, could you imagine being a punk rock band in 1979? I mean, you weren't even born yet. So no, you can't, but like, <laughs> I just know what was going on in the musical landscape. And these guys, they stuck their neck out. You know, he liked to, he was being very humble and saying, oh no, people did it before us. Sure. But you know, there wasn't many bands getting into a station wagon in 1982 and traversing the whole U.S. as a punk band. Wasn't happening. Yeah. At, at that point, yeah, maybe there's a few bands and it's been a few bands in a few years, but it was a whole new genre of music at that point. He's definitely a forefather of an entire revolution of music, you know, and there's no doubt about that. And yeah, it's wild to think that like in the grand scheme of things, even if you go back to the origins of punk rock, the whole genre hasn't even been around that long. We're talking 50 years yeah. from the time we're recording this. That's it. You and I have been around for a majority of it. We've been playing music for a majority of it. Well, yeah, I, I had mentioned that to some of the fans at the museum. I was talking about, you know, in 1992, when Less Than Jake started, you know, punk had only really been around for 17, 18 years, you know, and, and that's, that's going back if you're going to count, you know, which a lot of people do, MC5 and Iggy and the Stooges as being punk rock. You know, a lot of people consider it a little bit later than that. So there's kind of a blurry time frame there. But yeah, Greg's just, you know, and, and, and. To his credit, he looks younger now than he did in the 80s to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He still looks like a young man to me. Uh, especially, I just saw him play on stage not that long ago. I know you saw him a bunch of times recently, but I saw Circle Jerks with the Descendants in Pittsburgh six months ago or so or whatever, and it was great. It was yeah. awesome. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. And I know we've talked about this before, but you just said it. If the boom of punk rock happened in the early to mid 90s, 
1977's a year that gets tossed around a lot for like a boom of punk rock. You're talking about only 15 years later. From the time we're recording this, that would be like talking about, I don't know, 2008. <laughs> like, yeah. it's it's not that long of a time for the music to progress so far and get so huge. It's, it reminds me a lot of the evolution of hip hop. How quickly mm-hmm. that happened from from its beginnings in the late seventies, early eighties to its boom in the nineties. Those two genres of music really went along the same path, you know, right in the the same amount of time. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, there are tons of parallels. There, the first ten years of of rap and hip hop are very primitive. Listen to those recordings, everything from Sugar Hill Gang to Cool Mo D, and and look what happened after it. Well, as I said to Greg in the episode, when I first heard Circle Jerks '88 or '89, I heard Group Sex. And it was like only eight years old at that point, but it sounded dated and really old. That shows you how punk even progressed in those short eight years. You listen to Suffer by Bad Religion, that does not sound like group sex. And that was a short eight years later, seven years later. Yeah, but they definitely laid the groundwork for what was to come. Something I really love from this episode was the Mike Watt quote musicians practice actors rehearse. Dude, I have always said practice. <laughs> I always feel like when. When people in bands say I'm going to rehearsal or I'm going to rehearse, I'm like, who are you trying to fool here? Are you trying to sound more important? You're going to practice. <laughs> so I love that. I love that quote. Yeah, I never thought about that before. I, I use them interchangeably. Maybe I have to think differently about that, Chris. Yeah, I don't know. I always feel like people that say rehearsal are pretentious. <laughs> I say practice. Going to band practice. Man. If my band was way better, I could say rehearsal, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you say band practice. I don't care what band you're in. I think that the Beatles should have said practice right. and whatever. Uh, do you remember your very first culture shock? You were talking about the culture shock of like the punk rock world and stuff. Do you remember whether it was going to a show as a kid or maybe once you hit the road with Less Than Jake? Is there anything that stands out in your mind as like as a kid from florida like once you got out in the world being like oh my god what is going on here is there anything like that that comes instantly to mind yeah i mean there was certainly things on tv and stuff as a kid but really if if there's a point for me that that sticks out it would have been that first month or two that i arrived in gainesville as a 17 and a half year old kid and seeing the punk shows that i was seeing and seeing the things that i was seeing there okay Mm -hmm. i came from port charlotte florida i I wasn't seeing gay and lesbian people outwardly holding hands and kissing i there was you know guys showing up in dresses and in drag and and no one questioned it it was kind of a free-for-all to the point where it was a short month or two of me being there that the culture, the shock of it had all worn off to me. It was like, oh, this is just what you see at a punk show. (laughs) I had never seen anything like that in my life coming from where I came from. That's interesting you bring that up because I do feel like people that come from the punk rock world are very tolerant and accepting of people. I feel like that's like one of the tenets of punk rock, at least in, in my eyes. And so when people are like clutching their pearls and shocked about things, to me, I'm like, these are just people. These are people that I saw all the time, you know? And I think that's a really cool thing about punk rock is just being accepting of other people that are different than you. I think that's really, really cool. And speaking of tenets of punk rock, the spirit of this song, this Back Against the Wall, the the lyrics and the spirit of it, it really feels like 
it's also what punk rock is all about. It's exactly what he said, standing up to the man, the man holding you down. And once again, relate that back to hip hop and, and rap and the evolution. You've made that parallel a lot of times on this show and on the after party. And uh, I think that those two cultures, those two genres of music really grew together, both with that idea of the man is holding me down. Yeah, they, they both came from the streets and they both came from real intentions. And it doesn't right. get much, much more real than that. And I, I had said to Greg, you know, I, I'm like, you guys, you know, you went out there and, and you wrote a song, your first song together that holds up 44 years later. I use the, uh, the example of I fought the law and the law won. Who can't get behind that lyric? Let's raise our hands together and, and uh, unify as one. It's, it's awesome. And I'll tell you, you can also unify as one if you go to Chris Demakes com, which is where you can find our supporting cast, which is basically our Patreon, where you can support the podcast you know and love and get bonus episodes of The After Party each week for the price of a, I don't know, Chris, inflation's gone up in the past couple months. We're going to say apple juice in Greenville, Pennsylvania. Is it Greenville or Greenberg? Greensburg. Greensburg. I'm in Greensburg, Greensburg Pennsylvania. Greens For the price of an apple juice in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, you too could support Chris and Chris. That's true. That's probably true. Yeah, it's about what an apple juice costs. I would say that our supporting cast and apple juice are about the same price. And Chris, I would also encourage people, yes, go to ChrisDemakes.com. As Chris said, you can unify as one with us with a weekly bonus episode of The After Party. And there's a giant back catalog of those as well. But also, I want to mention, Chris, that people should check out the YouTube channel, the Krista Makes a Podcast YouTube channel. I'm really working hard at trying to get a lot of video clips up on there. You know, our full episodes are up there as audio. I'm not putting the full episodes of video up because I do feel like adding the song clips and references are a big part of that, and it's hard to do that with the video. But I like to take out snippets. It could be a four or five minute segment that I think is interesting from each episode. So we're trying to put a lot of those up. So yeah, check out the Krista Makes a Podcast YouTube channel and subscribe. We appreciate your subscriptions. Maybe we'll get some interaction on YouTube. Absolutely. Everything Chris said and more. Thank you, each and every one of you for supporting us. And I want to thank this week's guest, Greg Hetson from The Circle Jerks for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. 
Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.